in whose name we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, we read, By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Uh, Deep down in the depth of our soul, every man and woman and boy and girl is desperate for rest. Rest, Sabbath in the Bible, is a a deep rest, a deep peace, a state of wholeness, of flourishing in every dimension of life. It is that state of being so satisfied, so utterly satisfied with everything that you're at peace with yourself and with the world around you and most importantly of all, you're at peace with your God for that is where rest is found. Over these last weeks, as we've looked at the early chapters of Genesis, we've seen again and again that being at rest with God, being in perfect relationship with him, was the goal of creation. It's how the first creation narrative ended, as we've seen in chapters, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It's what we were made for. That's why we long for it, and why we're all looking for it, whether we know it or not, and whether we acknowledge it or not. The problem is, too often we look for that rest in the wrong place. We look to other things other than God to meet that deepest need. We look to work and leisure, materialism and relationships to give us that rest. In work we strive to prove ourselves in order to be at at ease with ourselves and to get the approval of others. Or we turn to materialism to try to get all the things that we think will satisfy us. And we think that leisure and pleasure will give us rest, so we go on exotic holidays, but you can take all the vacations in the world and if you don't have that deep rest of your soul, you will not truly rest. Work and materialism, hedonism, and of course, relationships. So often we look to find in another person that deep satisfaction for the soul. A few years before his death, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer with the band Queen said the words that I've had printed on the hand out there. He said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolisation and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. It's it's tantalising as he says these words. it's sad as I read those words Freddie Mercury was on to something he was almost right we do all need an ongoing relationship but not just any ongoing relationship we all need an ongoing relationship with Jesus Jesus is the source of rest he is where we find peace for our soul as we read in Colossians chapter 1 we were made by Jesus and for Jesus now that's what Genesis chapter 2 is all about. It's about being in, perfect, in a perfect place, enjoying the perfect relationship with God. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord God created for Adam the perfect environment to live in perfect relationship with God. Eden was a magnificent place, a place of blessing. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago. We saw how good and generous and gracious the Lord God is by providing everything and more for Adam. 
And so it comes as quite a surprise when we read Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And we come to our first point on the handout, the search for a helper, verses 18 to 20. You see, verse 18 is very arresting, particularly if you've been here over the weeks, if you've read through chapter 1 and as you read into chapter 2, all the way through chapter 1 as God created the world, we heard the refrain, do you remember it? It was good, it was good, and eventually it was very good. God created a good world. And now for the first time, here is something that is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. He needs a helper. Now, we must be careful here. This isn't telling us that Adam was lonely. Remember, this is a chapter all about being in relationship with the Lord God. Adam knew God in the garden. He walked with him every day. He wasn't lonely. He didn't just need a companion. Knowing the Lord was and is and will be the place of satisfaction and fulfilment and contentment. Knowing God was the place of satisfaction in Eden. Knowing God is the place of satisfaction today and knowing God will be the place of satisfaction in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Adam wasn't in need of a helper because he was lonely, unfulfilled and moping around with nothing much to do. No, it wasn't good for man to be alone because alone, on his own, Adam couldn't fulfil his God-given purpose in the world. Look back with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28 to see this. You see, we've seen in these last weeks how God wanted to spread life and blessing throughout the world. God is so good and gracious and generous. He wants everyone to know him. He wants everyone to have life in him and to be blessed in knowing him, to be at rest in him. And mankind was to spread life and blessing all over the world. Now we see that in chapter 1 verse 28. Having made man in his own image, we read verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. You see, God gave life to mankind and he blessed them and he wanted them to spread life and blessing throughout the world. Life and blessing. So mankind was to be fruitful and increasing number, life, abundant life all over the world to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam couldn't do that on his own. So chapter 2 is about both those things, subduing the earth by working the garden, as we saw a couple of weeks back, chapter 2, verse 15, and being fruitful, multiplying. Adam couldn't do that on his own. And so chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone on his own. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make someone to help him to spread life and blessing all over the world. Someone with whom he can be fruitful. Someone who will help him to fill the earth and subdue it. Now Gordon Wenham translates that word suitable there in chapter 2 verse 18 as someone who, who matches Adam. That is someone like him but opposite him. In other words, someone who would be complimentary. Somebody who would uh, compliment Adam. Adam needed a helper then and so in verses 19 and 20 we see the Lord God bringing all the animals and birds before Adam. But, end of verse 20, for Adam no suitable helper was found. None of the animals are a suitable complementary helper for Adam. A man's best friend is not his dog 
Uh, Not at least it shouldn't be, according to the Bible. The search for a helper then, a suitable helper. Secondly, um, the making of a suitable helper, verses 21 to 23. See, no suitable helper was found among the animals, and so, verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd made out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. See, having read chapter 1, Eve's creation is no surprise to us, or at least it shouldn't be. Do you remember, uh, we thought about this a few weeks ago. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 aren't sort of, um, uh, they don't sort of follow on in terms of time. Uh, No, chapter 1 is then filled out by chapter 2. It's all happening at the same time. So this shouldn't be a surprise to us, for in chapter 1, verse 27, we saw that God created mankind, male and female. There's something about being made male and female that reflects God's character. Chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And so, chapter 1, verse 28, male and female together are the means for God to spread life and blessing throughout the world. That's how God has ordained things. Woman is man's suitable helper. Not animals, and note, not another man. And there are at least two reasons why, uh, why she is suitable. I put them on the handout there. Firstly, because of her similarity. You see, verses uh, 21 and 23 tell us she was drawn out of man. God didn't create another species, another creature. No, none of the animals were suitable. Adam needed a similar helper. So man and woman are the same, equally human, equal before God, both made in the image of God. So to treat women differently is repugnant to the Christian. Now we dealt with this in more detail, but it's worth underlining now. To suggest that women are inferior is totally unacceptable to the Christian. And so the chauvinistic abuse of women down through the centuries is appalling. It's abuse that has led to the legalisation of of prostitution and pornography where women are seen as objects and treated as toys and where women are depersonalised and abused. That is abhorrent. Verse 23, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is similar to me, made in the image of God. How could I ever treat her like an object? So Eve is suitable because of her similarity, but but second note, she is suitable because of her diversity. See, God did not create another man but a woman. For she was not to be his rival or competitor, she was to be his partner and helper. In order to fulfil his role of spreading life and blessing all over the world, Adam didn't just need another pair of hands or another man would have done. He needed one to complement him. So men and women are different. Oh, equal, equally made in the image of God, chapter 1, verse 27, equal but different. And my, how we need to recover that truth. See, at the end of the 20th century and now at the beginning of the 21st century, this understanding has been challenged and eroded to such an extent that much damage has been done by by women trying to be men. 
The blurring of the edges when it comes to the different roles that men and women have to play has left people confused and really, frankly, disturbed. Men and women are equal, similar, but different. The search for a suitable helper. Secondly, the making of a suitable helper. And over the page on the handout, thirdly, the making of marriage. Verse 24. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, in making a suitable helper, God created marriage. 4 verse 24 lays down the foundations for all marriage. Note eight crucial things from this verse. It's not going to be long, I'm going to whip through them fairly quickly. Firstly, this is the pattern for all marriage. Verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and they'll become flesh. Do you see why that is, um, why that verse tells us this is for all marriage? If you look closely you see, it's uh, Adam and Eve didn't have a mother or a father. So this verse is not solely about them. Verse 24 applies the principle of the first marriage between Adam and Eve to all marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. See, that is how Jesus refers to this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. This is for all marriage. And seeing this here in the Garden of Eden is wonderfully helpful because then we, uh, we, we see that marriage is not something that is culturally driven. Marriage between a man and a woman is not a cultural phenomenon. It's a creation ordinance. It is the way God has made it. And that leads us to our second point on the handout from verse 24. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. We do need to be very clear on this, and not least of all because of the, front, the, uh, the, the lead story on the front page of the Times uh, last uh, Sunday. Uh, gays will get right to marry. It's not a particularly helpful um, heading, but uh, this is how it goes. Uh, Gay men and lesbians are to be given the same right to marry as heterosexual couples under marriage law reforms expected to be announced this week. Well, there has been no announcement from the government, as far as I know, that that there are any plans to introduce full same-sex marriage, but still, a fundamental Christian truth is under fire today. There is a push for this from a vocal minority. And as we as Christians stand against this, at best we will be called traditionalists and at other times we'll be called bigots and worse. But you see, this is why it's so helpful to go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear that believing that marriage should be between one man and one woman is not a tradition. I'm not a traditionalist. It's not cultural. It has been ordained by God. And it's not bigotry to be abiding by God's way. It's not intolerant and narrow-minded and prejudiced. To be for marriage between one man and one woman is to be saying, God knows what is best and I'm obeying him. Nothing bigoted about that. In fact, it's quite humble, isn't it? I don't know better than God, I'm simply obeying him. In Genesis chapter 2, God tells us that marriage between two men or two women is not right. And as Christian people, we must stand against that. I think to ignore it is to go against God, just to sort of uh, bury our head in the sands 
is to be ignoring what God has said. And to go against God will have an adverse effect on society. Already is. Third, no, marriage is, is a good thing. Marriage is good. Oh, it's an obvious point, but it's important to state again. Marriage is here in the garden before the fall. Marriage was created by God. It is a good gift of God, part of God's good creation. Many of us know that from our own experience. Even though we now live in Genesis 3 land, in a fallen world, many of us know the great joy of marriage, of the intimacy of knowing another human being of the opposite sex in the loving and supportive and secure institution of marriage. Marriage is good, so let's protect it. Let's not speak ill of marriage or tell crass jokes about marriage. To do that is to speak ill of a good thing that God has given us. Fourth thing, marriage is not, it is not the place of ultimate satisfaction. Now you see, we understand this from the context of Genesis chapter 2. It's why I started as I did. God is the place where we find significance and satisfaction. God is the place where we find rest. A marriage is a good thing, created by God, but it's not to become the ultimate thing. It's not to take the place of God. Indeed, if Adam, and, if Adam had made his relationship with Eve his focus in life, if Eve had become everything to Adam, he wouldn't have needed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he'd have already made an idol out of marriage and he'd have pushed God to one side. Yes, marriage is good, but beware of finding your significance and ultimate fulfilment in marriage or family. Look, God does this for our good again, do you see? Do you see what happens if you make another person the ultimate thing in life? Eventually you'll be distraught, devastated. If that relationship breaks down, what are you left with? I've made them everything and now they're gone. And of course at death... Well, of course you'll be upset. Of course you'll be devastated one, at one level if you're, when, when your spouse dies. But, but isn't it wonderful to think that if I haven't put everything on them but I put everything on God, I've still got something. Well, it's worth dwelling on this because in 20 years of pastoral ministry I've spoken to many people, especially those in their 20s and 30s, many Christians who feel that life is not complete until they are married. Look, from Genesis chapter 2 alone we can see that we are not to find ultimate satisfaction in marriage. But as we move to Genesis chapter 3, we see that all the more. So just flip the page to chapter 3, verse 16, top left-hand corner of page 6. Now this is where um, uh, the, 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 the mankind has fallen and, uh, and, and the curse is coming upon the world. Uh, Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to your children. And look at this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, now I'll do more of this uh, in a few weeks' time uh, when we look at this section. Uh, and I'll explain why the desire word is not a positive word at all. It's quite a negative word. Uh, but, but for now, see that the fall, because of the fall and the curse, marriage will never be all that it might have been in Eden. In marriage in Genesis 3 land, there will always be a temptation towards conflict between a husband and wife. But then we know that, don't we? Even in the best and most loving Christian marriages, there are tensions from time to time. So let me say clearly and deliberately, you will not find satisfaction in marriage. You're not meant to. 
You weren't meant to in Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, and now that we're in Genesis 3 land, marriage cannot be even all that it might have been back in Genesis 2. Don't look for marriage to give you what only God can give you. If you do, you'll not only be disappointed, but you will also ruin marriage. For no other human being can bear the burden of being everything to another. That's a sure way to suffocate your spouse. Marriage will collapse under the weight of that kind of expectation. So let me say, firmly yet gently, to any single people here, both those who've never been married or those who've been married and are now on their own, beware of idolising marriage. Beware of thinking to yourself, if only you were married, then everything would be okay. And let me say to the concerned parent here, beware of that same thinking as you look at your grown-up daughter or son and long for them to be married, thinking that marriage will in some way meet their deepest needs. No, our deepest needs can only be met in Christ. He is the place of rest for our souls. Fifth, in marriage, man's first obligation is to his wife. Again, verse 24. Uh, Verse 24 of chapter 2. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Leaving father and mother and cleaving uh, to wife. I often uh, go through this verse with uh, newly engaged couples as they prepare for marriage, especially when they have a, a really good relationship with their parents. I tell them to rejoice that they have such a good relationship with their parents. However, when they're married, they need to look to each other first for support, advice and wisdom. It's not that they should never ask their parents for advice, but now their first port of call must be that their principle of allegiance must be to their spouse now. Now, we sort of do marriage prep with couples. We go through that sort of thing with them. I think it's much harder for parents. We don't do any marriage prep for them as they lose their daughter or son. It's hard for them to grasp this, but it's crucial that parents let their children go and don't interfere in their children's marriages. For in marriage there is a new allegiance towards your spouse. Uh, Sixth point from verse 24, sex is for marriage. Again, verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. See, in marriage, a husband and wife will become one flesh. And that is to be expressed in sex. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul quotes this verse to talk about sex. And so we see here that God's purpose for sex, apart from the obvious reproductive function, is that it will form a bond between a husband and wife. It is spiritual superglue. Sex unites people. Which is why married couples should not abstain from sex, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's why sex outside marriage is so harmful, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6. Sex is not only extremely pleasurable, it is also extremely powerful. Sex joins people together in a way that goes beyond the merely temporary and physical. In a profound, irreversible, God-given way, sex makes two people become one. And so sex outside marriage causes great harm to the people involved. Uh, A university professor made this point to his students by by taking a six-inch strip of adhesive tape. He chose the hairiest student in the room to come forward and told him to roll up his sleeve. 
Now, the professor said, tell the tape not to stick. And the student obliged. Don't stick, he said, looking at the tape. And the professor pressed the tape onto his forehand and said, let's see if the tape obeys you. And with a single rip, he tore the tape off the student's arm and the student yelped. Makes the point that when you're joined together through sex, it hurts when you try to pull yourself apart through ending a relationship. But the professor had a further point to make. He put the tape back on the student's arm and did the same again. Ripped it off. Any better, he said. A little, said the student. And the professor repeated the process five times and each time the tape was less sticky than the time before. That's what happens with sex in this promiscuous culture. When when we've pulled away from a partner after partner, eventually sex loses its effectiveness to join us, to make us one. Have multiple partners and you will feel less and less for each subsequent partner. And so listen to this, promiscuity causes huge psychological problems. We still long for intimacy, but our capacity to satisfy that longing is spoiled. And so rather than multiple partners bringing us more and more pleasure, as the world tells us, promiscuity actually leaves people feeling less and less satisfied. And in a desire to find something from sex, they have to look to more obscure and perverted sexual acts to satisfy them. Sex is for marriage. Keep it there. Which leads to our seventh point. Sex is good. See, having said all that I've just said, in this day and age, Christians are heard to be saying that sex is bad. Well, actually, Christians have often been heard to say that sex is bad. But look, sex was in the Garden of Eden as part of God's good creation. Nothing bad about sex. In a marriage relationship, in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, sex is good. But just as we said with marriage, so with sex, it is not to be an end in itself. We should not look to marriage or to sex to find peace and to be at rest. That deep longing of the soul can only be found in Christ. Don't look anywhere else for it. Which leads to point eight. Marriage is meant to point towards the ultimate relationship with Christ. See, marriage is good, but it was always a sign of the relationship the Lord wants with his people. A relationship with Christ that brings peace and rest. That's the point Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 5, the second of our two readings. Uh, Perhaps you'll come with me. Ephesians chapter 5, page 1177. And with this we will draw to a close. Page 1177. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read at verse 31. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There we are, there's, there's our, our verse, so Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. And all the way through this section, Paul has been speaking about marriage. Now look back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. All the way through, it's talking about marriage. But then look at the surprise in verse 32. I'll read from verse 31 again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Isn't that a surprise? As you read that, you want to say, no, no, Paul, you've been talking about marriage. 
And then as you read back, you begin to see that all the time that Paul has been talking about marriage between one man and one woman, he's also talking about a relationship between Christ and his people. And as you read back through the verses, you see that. So again, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and so on. The relationship in a Christian marriage between a husband and a wife is meant to point towards the greater relationship that we were all made for between Christ and his people, for that is where we find rest. See, the spread of life and blessing is the, is the thrust of Genesis chapter 2. Today, now that we, read, we, we live in Genesis chapter 3 land, in a fallen world, we spread life and blessing through the gospel. And Christian marriages should be a visual aid of the gospel, of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. Sometimes people say to me, what do you mean being in a relationship with Jesus? What what does a relationship with Jesus look like? And I always say to them now, look at a good Christian marriage where a husband loves his wife so that he'll do anything for her good where he creates an environment where she can flourish and reach her full potential and become all that she possibly could become. A marriage where the husband lays down his life for his wife. And look at the wife in that marriage as she willingly enjoys being led and loved by a man like that. That's a picture of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. I see, Jesus is the best husband. And Jesus is the model husband. Jesus' love is love divine. All loves excelling. For he laid down his life for his bride. He died for people who ignored him and who mucked up his world. Jesus is not an abuser. He's not a user. He is the true lover. And through his sacrificial death we can be restored to the ongoing relationship that we all want and need. An ongoing relationship with the Lord that will satisfy me and bring me security and rest. That deep rest, the deep rest of being so satisfied, so utterly satisfied with everything that you're at peace with yourself and with the world around you. And most importantly, you're at peace with your God. That is where I find peace. With Christ alone. Well, let's turn to pray. And I'll uh, leave some silence for you to make your own response to the Lord. There might be uh, one or two things that uh, God has particularly challenged you on or encouraged you by. Uh, A moment of silence for you to sort of let that really sink in and for you to respond to him in prayer in in the quiet of your own mind. Uh, And while you do that, let me say that for some Christians here... Some of you will have been chasing after other things to find satisfaction, things that will never satisfy. Why don't you use this time to repent of those things and to realise that Jesus is the only place of satisfaction? And then there'll be others here who've never started a relationship with God through Jesus. You might be religious, you might have been to church for years, you might know about Jesus, but you don't have that intimate relationship with him. Well, today's the day.
in the quietness now that I leave, why don't you turn to him, asking him to be your Lord and your Saviour. A moment of silence then.